Thank you, Cody, and for that beautiful worship. I've never been more thankful for Sanctuary, uh, that you people are my people. That's such a, a wonderful thing, and I feel like there's just such comfort in being with each other right now. I want to ask you to stand with me. We always stand for our reading from the Gospels. But even before we do that, I would love it this morning because I do think there's something, um, especially with uh, such trauma and grief right now, there's something just about physical touch. And don't worry for my introvert friends, I'm not about to put you in small groups in service. I'm not going to do that to you. I would ask you, though, and you don't have to look anybody eyeball to eyeball, but if we could just join hands with the people around us, because do that. Maybe stretch across, if it, you can, where you are, would be great. And I'd love us just to have a moment to just pray together as, as a family. Lord, we... Our hearts are so heavy today, and we've already been bringing these things into your presence, but now we just, one, we want to receive the, the grace of your presence, the gift of our brothers and sisters, we want to extend your grace to them and your strength to them. Um, we have spent time, and we will again, um, praying for our world, but I do pray uh, just for your comfort to my friends here, because I know that you are sending out these people my friends, my brothers and sisters, as witnesses into the world of your grace and your love and mercy. So I pray for your healing. I pray for your mercy. I just pray that uh, just for the love of God to be shed abroad in their hearts and you would make us open and receptive now to heal your word in such a way that it would transform us, that it would change us, to make us agents of your healing and life into all of the brokenness of the world. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remain standing if you would, and we'll go right to our text this morning from the lectionary, Luke chapter 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend. Which of these three do you think? was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat. There are certain images um, that I think become defining for a culture some things that once you see them, you simply cannot unsee. Um, I don't know that I really want some of those images in my head right now that I can't shake. Does it perhaps for that reason was important to see them? 
I'm thinking um, specifically this morning of, of a handful of particular moments. I'm thinking about Alton Sterling, the moment after he shot, uh, twitching on the ground and his eyes starting to roll uh, back into his head. I'm thinking about that particular moment when um, Philando Castile, uh, when you see the, the blood spreading on his white T-shirt, and then later the little girl in the back seat, that moment sort of frozen in time for me. I'm seeing the image of a white cop and a black cop with a peaceful black protester smiling and taking a picture before the protest. And I'm seeing the image in my mind right now of after the shooting of five Dallas police officers, of a black police officer hugging a white woman and just in tears. All these images that are so defining for the hurt and violence in our world right now. And so much for us to grieve, collectively, individually, um, things that we really don't have words for. And uh, I know a lot of this is, um, all of this really is so delicate right now. Um, so many emotions that are stirred up, and, and rightfully so. Uh, rage, grief, anger, such, such deep sorrow and brokenness. Um, so there's a lot I'd love to be able to, to speak to, uh, but I think I want to say this first right out of the gate. I know right now language is especially politicized and lots of different directions and parsed in different ways. Um, we've had a whole little mini-war this week between hashtags of Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter as if somehow these things are mutually exclusive or there's some kind of competition um, I do want to say very clearly that black lives matter. And I want to say that uh, black lives matter to the people of God. I think that's important to be said because we have a very large percentage of our brothers and sisters who feel like they have spent an awful lot of their lives not being seen and heard and their experience of life in America not being seen and heard by the church. And some of the deep grief that I've heard from some of my own friends this week has come in this form of saying, how many times do these things have to happen? How much do you have to see in order to take this seriously? And in some cases, great that this bothers you this week. Have you not been paying attention all along? There is such, such deep hurt um, for our African-American brothers and sisters and uh, so many experiences that I know as a privileged white male, I simply cannot understand or fathom. I know that some people immediately kind of get their backs up at the very notion of privilege or the idea that somehow all of us are complicit in creating a, a, a society that works the way that it does. Um, I have yet to meet a person, incidentally, who's, who thinks they're a racist. Have you ever noticed that? No one thinks they're a racist. <laughs> Whatever they do, it's, you know, it's not that. And I think there's so many things that we're unaware of. Uh, Well-meaning, good intentions. But, you know, the text I think of a lot is when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he says, uh, as he's preaching, God sent Jesus of Nazareth, you killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Now the point in this text is not that the same crowd that's gathered is literally the same group of people who crucified Jesus. It's not like the Roman centurion who pierced his side is standing there. But the point is, you are complicit in this God-crucifying, Christ-denying world God sent Jesus, you killed him, but God has raised him from the dead. And I think in that same spirit, 
because we can say that about us. We are the ones who have killed Jesus. I think there are so many things systemically that are broken about our culture that we participate in, and we have no idea what we're doing. We have no idea what we're doing in general. Our technology is so far ahead of us. Our weapons are so far ahead of us. Our gadgetry is so far ahead of us. I don't know what I'm doing to my brain to be able to watch the slaughter of a human being within seconds of reading news about the NBA. I don't even know what that's doing to me. I don't know what we're doing to, our, to ourselves. There's so, there, there, there are so many things about the world that are so deeply broken. But I think it's very important uh, on a morning like this that we express solidarity with our African-American brothers and sisters who are feeling such deep grief. And of course this morning we are standing alongside families of those five police officers who were slain in Dallas. Of course we're feeling the weight of that. It's a terrible thing for our black brothers and sisters. It's a terrible thing for friends of mine who are police officers to feel afraid. I don't like the idea of anybody going out today and feeling afraid, but there's so much fear right now, so much panic. So many reasons that it would seem to be afraid. So many things, again, that are so deeply broken. And I think one of the things that it feels most imperative for me to speak to in all of that this morning, trying to kind of say a lot of things and yet say only a handful of things too, is I think it's so important right now for the people of God in particular to exercise deep discernment about all that's happening around, deep discernment. Because I feel like we're in a time right now where we're so reactionary and uh, so quick to judge and so quick to blame and so quick to scapegoat and so quick to oversimplify things that really are quite complex. And in all of this, I keep hearing the words of the Apostle Paul in my head in Ephesians when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers Spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The very moment that we decide that we have an enemy, that we're fighting, and that enemy has a human face, the very moment that we slip into that kind of us versus them kind of thinking, we're already getting out of being in the spirit We're already getting into very fleshly, carnal territory because we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. We're not wrestling with other people. We're not wrestling with Republicans. We're not wrestling with Democrats. We're not wrestling. There there is no people group that we're wrestling with. We're not wrestling with gays. We're not wrestling with Muslims. We're 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 not wrestling with flesh and blood. We are not contending with any of that. What we're contending with right now are very real, dark spiritual forces. And I'm not trying to turn this all into like some kind of a, I don't know, a mashup between Ghostbusters and Frank Peretti and make it all spooky. But that's part of what's interesting about Paul's language of principalities and powers. Very broad language that encompasses, I believe, both spiritual forces. And I do believe that there, in, 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 that there is real evil. I do believe in such a thing as demonic. I, there are things about that that are mysterious, but we don't understand. But this force of evil in the world that's greater than the sum of its parts. And yet also that encompasses very real human structures and systems that oppress and that enslave. All of that, I think, is wrapped up in this idea of principalities and powers. My friend uh, Bruxy Cavey likes to say, we're not fighting people, we're fighting ideas. And I think sometimes that is the case. There are these ideas, even these ideologies. Paul, in another place, says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
And if there's nothing else that I can say conclusively for all the things we might feel ambiguous about right now, it's this. Nothing that's going wrong right now is going to be fixed with carnal weapons of warfare. Nothing is going to be fixed by wrestling with flesh and blood. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to be able to arm the right people. We're not going to be able to somehow logistically figure out how to sniff out all the danger and somehow preemptively. That's not, it's not how the world works. We're not wrestling with flesh and blood. I really think that one of those principalities and powers, that one of those ideologies that we most have to fight and resist right now is the people of God, who are a people of peace, is uh, this, in the language of uh, Walter Wink, the myth of redemptive violence, this idea that somehow it will work to fight fire with fire, that where there's violence in one place, that somehow uh, we can fix that with more violence. I think about where Jesus is accused of casting out spirits in the name of Satan. And Jesus says the house divided itself, uh, divided against itself cannot stand. Satan cannot cast out Satan. And I think in the same spirit, violence cannot cast out violence. It just doesn't work. And the reason we uses this language of the myth of redemptive violence, it's this idea that perpetuates most of our films, television shows, whatever else, where t- there's this idea that if there's this kind of violence, another kind of violence can somehow overcome it in a way that puts down the evil, and then you know, the good guys win and we go on. But it never works. Violence is always a spiral. Violence always begets more violence. And the people of God are the unique witness to the peaceable kingdom of Jesus in this way. I really don't want to get into uh, some kind of like um, a fine-tuned debate here, as sometimes happens within the church, and these are important conversations. Well, is war ever justified? Can there ever be self-defense? You know, right now, I'd be happy with the baseline, uh, just kind of consensus of this, if I could get it. I think this would be awesome. That the people of God, that the church is first and foremost called to be a people of peace, following the Prince of Peace, who are seeking to be peacemakers in the world. Can we maybe get a consensus on that? That violence is not ideal? <laughs> Wouldn't that be radical? I, I mean, I, that sounds almost facetious, right? But I really feel like right now that so many of us are so caught up in the spirit of the age, that so many of us are caught up in the toxicity that's out there, that we're not even clear about our calling as peacemakers in any of this, that we're not even, we're, we're not even clear of what we're supposed to be seeking for and striving for in this way. So much toxicity. I'm reminded, I keep bringing up Paul right now, but that Paul once refers to Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And I really feel like that right now. There's almost a kind of electricity in the air. It's interesting how um, years ago, and it's funny how much this comes to my mind now because it's not an awesome film, but I love Denzel Washington. Who doesn't love Denzel, right? And back in the day, there's a Denzel film called Fallen. Anybody see this movie? Where he plays a cop. He's a detective. Um, who catches the serial killer, happens in the beginning of the movie, so no big spoiler, and the serial killer is apparently demon-possessed, so after he catches him and they electrocute him, then that spirit goes out into the world, and now it's transferring from one person to the next. So the kind of conceit of the film is that whenever one person has the spirit, then they touch another person, and then they, they have the demon. So somebody's just walking down the street, and then somebody touches them, ah, like all of a sudden then they're possessed, and which seems like really far-fetched and silly in some ways, and yet I honestly feel like that's some of the dynamic I feel like I'm watching in culture right now. People who I know to be good, like would give me the shirt off their back, like I've seen deep goodness in them. 
And yet, because there's so much toxicity and so much of it, just kind of so much violence in the air right now, it's like something grips a hold of them and like, and I'm, what are you saying right now? I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. What's coming out of your mouth right now? Like things that just feel so dark to me and so demonic, so much accusation. I'll remind you that in the Old Testament, the first appearance of Satan proper. I mean, keep in mind, Genesis talks about the serpent, but doesn't specifically say Satan. The book of Job is the first like outright explicit appearance of Satan. And when Satan appears, the term that's used in Hebrew is that Satan is the accuser. And so it's not a surname. It's not a first name. It's like, hi, I'm Satan. Like it's, uh, he is the Satan. He is the accuser. Accusation is so intrinsic to who Satan is. In the same way that we describe in the New Testament, John talks about how God is love. Accusation is at the heart of who and what Satan is, however you understand that evil to be. Now, I, I, sometimes I put it this way, which weirds people out a little, that accusation isn't just of the devil, it is the devil. <laughs> accusation is so primary. And, and, and I just don't think we understand this because the very moment that we get caught up in the blaming and the scapegoating, the very moment that we buy into the us versus them, the good guys and bad guys, the very moment that we slip into that, I really believe that we're already getting into the devil's territory, and we don't recognize that. No wonder it has such power to change us. No wonder things get so dark so quickly. Um, that kind of accusations that we hurl. I, I, I used this in the first service, not planning to, but this is the best I got like for this moment. And I, you know, this may hit some of you too close to home in one direction or the other. But there's, somehow there's been a shift in our culture politically. People have always had deep disagreements, right? I mean, when you read stuff about I, I'm kind of a history buff, so founding fathers. Like, I mean, they were contentious. And, you know, Jefferson feuding with John Adams or with Alexander Hamilton. Like, there's always been political conflict. But one of the things I do think is kind of unique about our era is that, you know, it's not just about disagreeing with someone's ideas or saying, I think they're wrong or I think that idea is stupid. It's, I remember when I was a little younger, uh, during the time of the George W. Bush administration, I had, even in terms of my convictions at the time, I had some deep issues with the Iraq war. Like, I was really troubled by this. But I remember seeing a film, a documentary that was popular at that time, which basically asserted that the Bush family was connected with Saudi oil money and essentially wanted to make the, the sort of claim that the whole war was engineered basically for the Bush family to, to get wealthy off of this. And I just remember thinking at the time, like, ah. Like, I don't really agree with the Iraq war, but I definitely don't think that. I definitely don't think George W. Bush is a maniacal, evil person who is concocted. Like, I, I, I definitely don't believe this war is a ruse. I, like, I really don't think that. That's like, I'm, that personally, that's, I'm not in those kind of conspiracy theories. But Obama administration, what, what have we seen? Like, I don't just disagree with him. He's the Manchurian candidate. He was programmed by the Antichrist, and he's... He's a terrorist himself. He's somehow, this stuff is in the main artery of culture right now. Not on some fringe website. Like your aunt and uncle are talking about this at dinner, you know? And, and it's like, it's, the point is, it's so, and you're like, but, but, but he really is? So, let's save that for another time. The point is, right now, all of that is happening so casually. This kind of labeling and blaming and scapegoating. I just don't think we realize what it's doing to us. I don't think we even realize what this kind of violent language and violent disposition is doing to us as a culture. That when you're that quick 
to utterly dismiss a people group or when you're that quick to label another person as evil, do not be surprised when we reap what we sow in that regard and that then people are, there's this kind of uprising against one another. Our very language is so violent right now and yet it's become so common, it's almost not detectable to us anymore. Is any of that making sense? It's a... In so many ways, it feels like such a scary time to be alive. And yet, here's the thing that's always unique about how the Spirit of God works. The very moments in history that are the scariest times to be alive, there's also, in an odd way, the most hope. The very things that are breaking us down are also breaking us open. The things that are breaking us down are breaking us open. So in the very moment that as a people right now that we're hurting and we're grieving... It, it also opens us up to new possibilities. It causes us to be dependent on God and on each other in ways that we were not before. And, and, and so, it's not, so in addition to all the things that feel so dark and difficult, there is this hope that as we push towards the end, I'm thinking about Peter's sermon again on the day of Pentecost when he proclaims the words of the prophet Joel, that in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Like, Part of that, that we're seeing that too. All of this heartbreak, all of this harm, all these things that make us afraid. And yet, at the same time, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if we're ready for that, if we're looking for that, if we're open to that, there's just so much that's happening right now. Is any of that making sense? Um, no, evidently not. <laughs> that's a very rhetorical question. Um, I do want to kind of bring this around, though, to, to, the, to the text, um, because for all these things that I feel like are so important right now, because I've been speaking in broad strokes, you know, I'm talking about um, principalities and powers and systems and structures and even spirits and all, the toxicity of the culture. Those are really, really broad things. What I love so much about this text in particular, which I did not choose, that is the gospel text for today, and it just seems so appropriate, is that it brings all of this around in a much more particular, tailored kind of way. And this story of the Good Samaritan, because this really is a story about how we see. And it's not a broad, abstract story about how we see culture. It's not about big ideas. It's about how we see real people. It's about how we see actual flesh and blood, live people who are in front of us. And before even kind of getting the text, I want to, um, I want to make a pretty big claim here. Um, I really believe that the measure of holiness, and I think this bears out throughout the witness of Scripture, certainly through the teachings of Jesus, the measure of holiness entirely, whether or not we are becoming Christ-like people, whether or not we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, entirely rests on this, on whether or not we are able to see the image of God in someone who is very unlike us. The measure of holiness is whether or not we are able to discern the image of God in someone that we consider other. I don't care what other uh, uh, parameters or metrics you want to use. I, I, don't I would do not believe that you're growing in Christ-likeness. I do not believe that you're becoming a more holy person if you're not coming to be able to recognize the image of God in someone who is very unlike you. It's the whole shooting match. This becomes so clear through the teachings of Jesus if we'd only pay attention to them, which is part of the weird thing, though, about the world I grew up in. And I, you know, not hating on any of that, but it's like, I do laugh about it sometimes. It's like, I grew up in a world where we, uh, we took Scripture very seriously, and we were very literal in our interpretation of Scripture, mostly. So this is how, what that looked like. 
Uh, we believe that the earth is 6,000 years old. Check. We believe in a real Adam and Eve in a garden. We believe that Jonah was actually swallowed in the belly of a whale. Okay. Then you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and you're getting in all that stuff about Jesus tells us about blessing enemies and turning their cheek. I mean, you can't literally do that. I mean, Jonah in the belly of the well, yeah, but I mean, nobody can really. That's not practical. <laughs> Super literal until you get to Matthew 25, and Jesus is talking about separating the sheep and the goats, not based on whether or not they prayed the sinner's prayer, but on whether or not they received and cared for the poor and the marginalized. I'm, you can't take any of that too seriously. Isn't that, does that not strike you as a little bit weird? I mean, like everything, like all the things that we thought were so literal and true in those texts are like, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, that was it. That is, that is my summation of fundamentalist responses to some of those key Jesus texts. Just kind of trails off into gobbledygook. Like, what, 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 what is that? Schofield Study Bible says the Sermon on the Mount is, has something to do about the way life will look in the millennial kingdom. What? I mean, this is central, like teaching of Jesus. But, but things yet we marginalize. I'm, I'm, I'm getting so far off my text right now. The, so to get, to get to the story, and I'll move quickly here. So this man wants to know, this young Hebrew scholar, lawyer, he wants, he wants to know what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Oh, I already do all that. Cool, okay. So, so now Jesus uh, poses this particular challenge. He tells this man a story about um, a man who's traveling this long road, Jerusalem to Jericho, 17 miles, uh, dangerous road. People were, con- were commonly beaten and attacked. That, that really happened. But he tells a, a, a parable, a fictitious story about... A man who has been on this road and somehow he's been attacked. And uh, this is in a culture, keep in mind, where people usually could recognize one another easily by how they dress. Uh, how a person's dress immediately tells you about their religion, tells you about their class. Like those are easy things to recognize. But here's a man who's been beaten, he's been stripped. So when you see him from afar, you don't know what you're looking at. You just see a broken, bleeding person by the road. And the first person who comes by, is a priest. A priest in Jesus' time is not just someone who has a certain kind of religious stature or class in a community. Uh, He's of an upper financial class, especially where a lot of Jesus' contemporaries were really quite poor. The priest was elevated. He probably is coming in. He's riding on a donkey or something that, you know, someone else wouldn't be able to ride. He, He has a certain kind of affluence in the culture. And when he sees this man who's broken and disfigured by the road, He can't bring himself to stop. Very easy for us to kind of villainize the priest, but just to put in a word of sympathy for him, there are so many good reasons for a priest to pass by. I mean, for one, a priest in Jesus' day would be actively engaged in caring for the poor because that essentially would be part of his job according to Levitical law. So in a sense, you know, here's somebody who's probably already gave at the office, that expression we use. Here's someone who's terribly busy. Here's someone who... Um, For one knows, as he sees this body by the road, how do you even know if this person's living or dead? As a priest, if he touches a corpse, then he's going to be ceremonially unclean himself for months and can't go about his regular duties. There are a lot of perfectly good reasons 
for him to pass by in the same way that there are perfectly good reasons for us to pass by someone who's broken and bleeding and hurting because we're busy, because we already paid our tithes, because we already served in the nursery once this month, whatever it might be, that we just keep on going. The Levite comes next, not bound as much by regulation as the priest, but he still has a lot of them. He's still a very religious person. And essentially, you have the same scenario. He sees this person broken, bleeding by the side of the road. He doesn't come to him. Finally, then you have the Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritan who, in Jesus' time and culture, uh, if you can only even understand the, 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 the shock of where Jesus even starts to go with this, because Samaritans are so despised. They have hundreds of years' worth of differences with the Jews. And uh, the, it, it's, it's not just an ethnic thing, though it is that to a point. But there's also real beef between them. There were some Samaritans before Jesus' time who had broke into the temple and desecrated the temple. All kind of bad blood. They were considered to be half-breeds. They were considered, because they had a, a kind of a deviation of Jewish religion, to, they, were, they, they were serving the wrong God, the wrong religion. Jews didn't think they were legitimately, they aren't saved in our vernacular. They're not even worshiping the true God. They're part of a false religion. This Samaritan, of course, for Jesus, is the hero of the story, which would be the same thing if you know the Westboro Baptist, you know the people who do those terrible protests. This would be like Jesus telling a story to people from Westboro Baptist about the good guy from the village people, you know, like who comes in, YMCA village people, and comes to help this person, and, or, or, or the good Muslim. I mean, it has just that level of, like, of otherness. And yet what he's telling this person who's doing everything that he can to keep the law is that he uses a negative example of a priest, a negative example of a Levite. The hero in the story is the Samaritan. Wrong creed, wrong religion, wrong ethnicity, wrong everything, according to the standards of this man who's hearing the story. And yet he is the one who actually sees this person who's broken and bleeding. And he doesn't care about who he is or where he comes from. All he knows is that he sees another human being who's in need of his help. And he's the one who comes and brings the oil and the wine. He's the one who bandages. He's the one who carries this man off to the inn. And this, according to Jesus, is the standard for us. This is what a holy life looks like. Becoming the kind of person who has the discernment to recognize people who are bleeding and hurting and will do anything to sit with them, anything to be with them, anything to care for them. This is what becomes so determinative for Jesus. I know, I know this is a big sermon, big ideas, but I think for me the thing that maybe is most, um, is most central in all of this, and it's so challenging to me right now, is the challenge of this story is um, there are people around us clearly who are bleeding and broken and hurting. What are you going to do about it? What, what are you going to do? which is not a question I even like to engage because I'm more of a theology person, you know? I want to come up with a, a, a good Samaritan theology. <laughs> I want to come up with good ideas. I, I want to preach well about the story of the good Samaritan. I don't want to have to do all this, but I think that this to me is the moment we're in right now as a culture. God is illuminating things. God is bringing division to the surface that has existed for years, God is bringing hurt to the surface that has existed for years. God is bringing injustice to the, service, to the surface now that has been here for years. It's always been here. It's always been around. God is bringing these things, and God is showing us all this hurt and all of this brokenness. And here we are posed with the question, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about these broken bodies around you? 
There's images in my mind. So how, how will you tend to them? Part of, what, uh, part of what's troubling about this is I don't think there's a fast, one-size-fits-all answer. I've talked to a number of my African-American brothers and sisters this week and kind of asked these kind of questions about, you know, like, sort of, what, do, what do we do now? And I feel like uh, the general tone and tenor of my friends to me, very kind, has been like, it'd be so awesome if you would stop talking so much, just shut up and listen to my story. It would be so great to be seen and known where I am. I, I can't say enough about how important I think it is right now in this time of deep division and polarity to see the humanness in people who are other than us and to listen and to sit and to be and to allow the Holy Spirit to open up then what we're supposed to do from there. Now, believe me, and I think this is part of our challenge as a church, there is more work that we're supposed to do besides just sitting and listening. I think one of the things we have to grapple with as a community at Sanctuary is what are we going to really do to work for racial reconciliation in Tulsa, Oklahoma? What does that look like for us? What does that look like for me? Not in the abstract. Like we have to deeply grapple with these questions. But before we can get into any of that, before we can follow any other action, none of it comes to bear if first we don't learn how to see in a different way than we've been seeing. This is what I'm trying to say, and I promise I'm wrapping up here, is the very heart of what holiness is all about. Coming to see the image of God in people who are different than we are, who are other than we are. And, and, here, and here's the part of the idea that's even more radical to me right now in some ways. Because I think so often we can use that language, especially we talk about broken and hurting folks around us in a way that can seem kind of condescending. Part of what I'm coming to see that's so transformative for me is that the reason that we need to ha- come to have very different eyes, eyes that are grace-healed, to be able to see people who are hurting around us in a very different way, is not for their sake, nearly so much as it's for our sake. Not because here are these broken, bleeding people who are desperately in need of my help, and I'm the only one who can do it. But because, track with me here, and let me just say this the way I really want to, my own salvation will not be complete The work of the Holy Spirit in my life will not be complete until I am able to see the gaze of Jesus in people who are very other than I am. I need that. You hear that? I need that for me to be complete. Salvation in Paul's terms always, I think, encompasses everything that starts from the moment we first come to encounter God until when we're finally conformed to the image of Jesus. It's the whole process. So part of, I believe, how God is saving us is he's transforming us in, in the ways that we learn to see his image through the gaze of someone else and the way that God sees us through that. Fascinatingly enough, when we make ourselves available to people who are hurting around us, it's not just about offering healing to them, offering the oil and the wine to them. God heals us through that. God mends us. Do you hear what I'm saying? God mends our own brokenness through that. God is transforming us. God is saving us through that. That sounds like works righteousness to me. No, not at all. I'm not talking about um, do good things for God, do charitable works, and then he rewards you. I'm telling you, I wish I had better language for this, that when we open our souls up to people who are other in that way, it actually opens up a, a, a channel, if you will, for the Holy Spirit to be able to heal us and restore us and change us. It transforms us in the ways that we desperately need to be transformed. This is not just about what we bring to the world, but how God wants to change us. My perspective is still incomplete. 
I'm still not seeing in the ways that God wants me to see. I'm still, not, I'm still blinded in so many ways. And so my prayer right now is really, Holy Spirit, open up my eyes to be able to see you at work. Open up my eyes to be able to see your image in people who are very different from me. Open up my eyes to be able to see your image in, in ways that will challenge me, in ways that will transform me. Any, anybody hear what I'm saying at all right here? I... I, I I'm landing the plane. I just, my prayer for us really is today. And I don't mean this to just be, again, I know people need comfort right now, you know, and, and, maybe, and I'd love to just do that. But here's, here's the bottom line. Right now, there's a lot of angst in the air right now. There's a lot of just all kind of energy going on. I think we desperately need to do something with that constructive. I think we desperately need to harness that. And instead of just talking about how awful it is, Really take this as a moment for deep self-reflection to say, Holy Spirit, what do, you, what do you want to show me about me right now and how you want me to engage the world? What do you want to show me about our church? What is it that you're calling us to do? Stand with me if you would. I'm more likely to stop talking. <laughs> and I want to take just a moment, if you would, just to close your eyes. And before, right before we uh, recite the creed and we come to the table, I just want you to... Take a moment, if you would, to just disarm and put aside any preconceptions about how God would, how you think God would want to speak to you. And if this doesn't just feel too utterly strange, I would love it if you could join me right now and just kind of gently laying your hands on your eyes. And I just want us to pray a prayer, something like this, in your own way. Lord Jesus Christ, you opened up the eyes of the blind over and over again in the Gospels. We're just so aware this morning. There is so much that we don't see Rightly, there's so much we don't know how to see. We don't know how to recognize you in the people who are broken around us. We don't know how to recognize you in otherness and difference. We don't know how to, Lord, there's so much that we don't see. We ask you, God, by your spirit, that you would touch our eyes, that you would heal our eyes. Really, in a supernatural way, God, open up our eyes so that we would not Look at the world in the same way, that we would not look at the people around us in the same way. God, do not let us be like the priest and the Levite who somehow find a way in our, our busyness, in our religious zeal, so we think, to not see and to not notice. Oh, God, help us to see and know in the ways that you see and know. Open up our eyes. Show us how to see in the way that you want us to see, Lord Jesus. And whatever it is that you want us to do, God, however you would call us to Bring healing to broken things in Tulsa, to broken people in Tulsa. However, Lord, that you would change us and restore us through that. However, you would bring life and healing to us as we extend ourselves to others. Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We are desperate to do your will. We want to be conformed to the image of your Son. Transform us, God. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Pastor Brent. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.